Well, greetings in Jesus' name. It is a good day to serve the Lord. That was a beautiful song we just sang. It uh, is on my list of favorites. That's some beautiful truths in it. Now, one of the lines that always kind of grips my attention is, um, I believe it's the third, third stanza where it says, Who is this who comes to meet me on the desert way? And then it says, In his glory well I know him, evermore the same. Him whom we have not seen, whom, though we see him not yet believing, we rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. I'd invite you to turn with me for our text and message this morning to the book of Isaiah in chapter 45. There is some good news in this chapter that I would like to have our attention focused on this morning. Y'all ready for some good news? Yes. Amen. Let's read. From the prophet Isaiah, chapter 45. Thus saith the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have holden, to subdue nations before him, and I will loose the loins of kings, to open before him the two-leaved gates, and the gates shall not be shut. I will go before thee and make the crooked places straight. I will break in pieces the gates of brass and cut in sunder the bars of iron. And I will give thee the treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret places, that thou mayest know that I, the Lord, which call thee by thy name, am the God of Israel. For Jacob my servant's sake and Israel mine elect, I have even called thee by thy name. I have surnamed thee, though thou hast not known me. I am the Lord, and there is none else. There is no God beside me. I girded thee, though thou hast not known me. That they may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord, and there is none else. I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. Drop down, ye heavens, from above, and let the skies pour down righteousness. Let the earth open, and let them bring forth salvation, and let righteousness spring up together. I, the Lord, have created it. Woe unto him that striveth with his maker. Let the potsherds strive with the potsherds of the earth. Shall the clay say to him that fashioneth it, What makest thou? For thy work he hath no hands. Woe unto him that saith unto his father, What begettest thou? 
Or to the woman, what hast thou brought forth? Thus saith the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, and his Maker, Ask me of things to come concerning my sons, and concerning the work of my hands, command ye me. I have made the earth, and created man upon it. I, even my hands, have stretched out the heavens, and all their host have I commanded. I have raised him up in righteousness, and I will direct all his ways. He shall build my city, and he shall let go my captives, not for price nor reward, saith the Lord of hosts. Thus saith the Lord, the labor of Egypt, and merchandise of Ethiopia and of the Sabaeans, men of stature shall come over unto thee, and they shall be thine. They shall come after thee in chains, they shall come over, and they shall fall down unto thee, they shall make supplication unto thee, saying, Surely God is in thee, and there is none else, there is no God. Verily thou art a God that hidest thyself, O God of Israel, the Savior. They shall be ashamed and also confounded, all of them. They shall go to confusion together that are makers of idols. But Israel shall be saved in the Lord with an everlasting salvation. Ye shall not be ashamed nor confounded, world without end. For thus saith the Lord that created the heavens, God himself that formed the earth and made it. He hath established it, he created it not in vain. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is none else. I have not spoken in secret. In the dark place of the earth, I said not unto the seed of Jacob, Seek ye me in vain. I, the Lord, speak righteousness. I declare things that are right. Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together, ye that are escaped of the nations. They have no knowledge that set up the wood of their graven image and pray unto a God that cannot save. Tell ye, and bring them near. Yea, let them take counsel together. Who hath declared this from ancient time? Who hath told it from that time? Have not I the Lord? And there is no God else beside me, a just God and a Savior. There is none beside me. Look unto me, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is none else. I have sworn by myself, the word is gone out of my mouth in righteousness, and shall not return, that unto me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear. Surely shall one say, In the Lord have I righteousness and strength, even to him shall men come. And all that are incensed against him shall be ashamed. In the Lord shall all the seed of Israel be justified and shall glory. Now there is an enormous amount of good news in this chapter. I would like to draw out seven um, statements here that the Lord makes, things he tells us about himself. And that's certainly not uh, the end of the list. I just thought that seven was a good number. And 
maybe about what we can contain in one message. And we will, um, I will just list them on the board here. Maybe I'll just try and write them all down now. And then we'll take a, take a look at them. I, the Lord, am the God of Israel. I am the Lord, and there is none else. And he also tells us, I have made the earth. And created man upon it. Then he tells us, Thou art a God that hidest thyself. And he says, I, the Lord, speak righteousness. Look unto me. And be ye saved. All the ends of the earth. And last, but certainly not least, unto me every knee shall bow. Now I'd like to just go down through this chapter and we'll kind of hit those points as we go down through as well as touching on some others. A few of these statements that I put up here in this list are very familiar phrases or terms and they are well known to us as some key things in our knowledge of God. And so my message this morning, I'm thinking of the marvelous things of God and the amazing things that He is and that He does and 
just thinking it's important for us from time to time to look at the bigger picture and just marvel at what God is and what he says about himself and even the fact that he has revealed himself to us. So follow with me as we do that this morning. There are also a few statements in here that have been a bit perplexing and troubling, and I'd like to speak on them as well. Um, There are also a number of things in this chapter that are repeated or even quoted from directly in the New Testament, and therefore we can gain a bigger and better picture of what God had in mind And we will note a few of those as we go. But going back from the beginning of the chapter, he say, Thus saith the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus. Now what was it about Cyrus? Cyrus was the king of Babylon, or of the Persians, And the children of Israel had been in captivity in that land, in the land of Babylon. They had been carried away captive because of their sin and their transgressions before the Lord. And the judgment came and they were carried away, had been there for 70 years, but God had not forgotten his people. And he brought them back. And here he recounts, or actually... I should say, it is prophesied what would happen. And there's actually, we're kind of breaking in the middle, the beginning of this chapter. Um, We look at the previous chapter, the last verse says, That saith of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and shall perform all my pleasure even saying to Jerusalem, Thou shalt be built, and to the temple thy foundation shall be laid. And then begins chapter 45, Thus saith the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus. Well, I'd like to mention that when the Lord says he is his anointed, he is referring to the special task that he had set for Cyrus, and the fact that he is ruling over kings. God knows all things, the end from the beginning. He sets up whom he will, and he puts down whom he will. And you see that in his dealings with Nebuchadnezzar. You see it in his dealings with Belteshazzar, who refused to honor God, even though he should have learned his lessons from King Nebuchadnezzar. But instead he made a feast and had this marvelous banquet and brought all the goblets from the temple uh, and used them in his debauchery there. And Then came the hand on the wall and wrote, And the judgment was written, Thou hast been weighed and found wanting. And Daniel says these words to the king. He says, The God in whose hand thy breath is, hast thou not glorified. Well, you move on to the reign of King Cyrus. 
even though he's a heathen king, God is going to work through him and through Cyrus came the commandment to rebuild Jerusalem. And that was uh, what was mentioned here. Verse 2 then, I will go before thee and make the crooked places straight. I will break in pieces the gates of brass and cut in sunder the bars of iron. Well, before we get away here from Cyrus, I would like to remind us that this was a, a, an event that marked a, a, one of the significant points of history because God bringing the people of Israel back from captivity after 70 years was a, was a sign that God was still operating in his people even though they had forsaken him, he had chastised them, they had suffered, and now God was bringing them back according to his promise. And he was going to do it through Cyrus. And he says, a few verses down, that he will do it not for, not for price nor reward, in verse 13, saith the Lord of hosts. In other words, it wasn't particularly to his advantage. Cyrus was not being paid to do this. It wasn't going to be some glorious thing for him. He did it because God directed him to do it. And it was so significant that the other prophecy that is even of importance to us today is that Daniel said very clearly that from the going forth of the commandment to rebuild Jerusalem until the Messiah the Prince shall be 70 weeks. And that was the beginning of a foundational prophecy that has portions that are not yet fulfilled. Because in the midst of the week, Messiah the Prince was to be cut off. And if you go back and study the history, and especially if you uh, read some of the work of scholars like James Usher, who calculated that that prophecy is referring to 70 weeks of years, and that from the commandment of the going to rebuild Jerusalem until the time that Jesus entered into his public ministry at his baptism was the exact specified number of years. So we have God's timetable here. He's He's the one who directs even heathen kings to do his will. We may not see that, but I'm persuaded that it is happening, even in our day, in ways we don't particularly recognize that some men are set up and others put down. And yet God holds their hearts in his hand, as he says. Well, then we go on. 
And we find here in verse 3, the first of the statements I put on the board, I, the Lord, am the God of Israel. You find that in the last part of the verse. I, the Lord, which call thee by thy name, am the God of Israel. Now there is a lot that we can draw from this, more than we can talk about this morning. One of the things Jesus said in his uh, preaching to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, those who said there was no resurrection, he reminded them that God has repeatedly called himself the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Is he not therefore the God of the living and not of the dead? Well, very simple. So when God, who is a God of life and power, when he calls himself the God of Israel, he's not referring to someone who just existed in the past and died. He's referring to someone who lives. Israel. And not only that, it's his people. He is identifying himself not just with the individual named Israel, but with the people named Israel, who were his descendants. And so he calls himself the God of Israel. And since he is an everlasting God, when he gives himself a title or a name, that is an everlasting name or title that will apply through time. So, Calling himself the God of Israel is not just only in the past, it also refers to what shall continue in the future. And I think of the, uh, is it the gates or the foundations of the, of the New Jerusalem? I'm trying to think, I guess it's the twelve apostles, the name of the twelve apostles that are in the in the foundations, but they were of Israel. And somewhere in that, the patriarchs there, the twelve tribes of Israel are also mentioned. Maybe their names are on the gates. I'm not sorry that slips my mind, but he is the God of Israel, the eternal God. Now just to try and draw some practical lessons for us today in this, out of this phrase, the God of Israel, is he not our God? And is Christ ashamed to call us brethren? No, he's not. He's not ashamed to call us brethren. We have been called, and there's a, there's a whole host of uh, scriptures and prophecies and principles there that we find in the New Testament how the Israel was cut off because of their unbelief and we have been grafted in, we have been made part of the family of God. And in the promises made to Abraham that in thee shall all nations of the earth be blessed, we have been partakers of that promise, we have been adopted in and therefore, when he says he is the God of Israel, 
there's a sense in which we also enter into those promises. And how would it be or how would it sound if God is not ashamed to call us brethren, he's not ashamed, if God would say, I am the God of Zion Christian Fellowship. Or if Christ were speaking, he said, I'm the head of the church over there. You know that church they call Zion Christian Fellowship? I'm the head of that church. They are members of my body. Doesn't that put some sobriety in how we should live and conduct ourselves and represent our fellowship? But isn't that how it should be? That he is the God of Zion Christian Fellowship. Well, he goes on to say in verse 4, For Jacob my servant's sake and Israel mine elect, I have even called thee by thy name. I have surnamed thee, though thou hast not known me. I have surnamed thee, though thou hast not known me. Seems a bit of regret, perhaps, on the Lord's part. I don't know if this is reproof necessarily, but just simply saying they haven't known him. And it, I don't believe it was his will that they not know him in the way that he desired to be known. I am the Lord and there is none else. There is no God beside me. I girded thee though thou hast not known me. That they may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord and there is none else. In thinking about this statement of verse 6, that they may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. Let's ask ourselves, is that the reality today? And the answer is no. There is not a universal knowledge or acknowledgement that God is God alone and there is none else. There are many that still deny him. There are many who would say there is no God or they have no need of God. And throughout this chapter, he makes reference a number of times to those who serve idols, those who have set up gods, those who pray to a God who cannot save. Now in our culture, in our land, we don't see so much of people actually bowing down to a physical idol. They have idols, but in, we think of those around us who don't believe in God, we call them perhaps unbelievers uh, and maybe atheists, agnostics. They would profess to not worship any god. That's what we are most common or most familiar with. 
You go to other lands, they have gods, they name them, they actually worship and pray to those gods. They have a great devotion to gods that cannot save. And so he's looking at all mankind the world over, all those who do not know the true God are looking to other gods and bowing down to them, worshiping them, praying to gods that cannot save. So he's emphasizing that he is a God, the true God, the only God, and the God that will save. And as he makes reference here in verse 6, and we'll see it repeated a couple of times in this chapter, there is coming a time when there will be universal recognition of this God, who he is, his worth, and his glory, and his majesty. But now we see not yet all things put under him, as he tells us in the book of Acts. Now, verse 7. I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. And in verse, uh, somewhat parallel there, in verse, uh, let's see, is it... uh, third item I have here, I've made the earth and created man upon it. That's verse 12. So he's speaking of himself as a creator God. He made all these things. And at the end of time when all of creation will join together and say, Thou art worthy, O Lord, because thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. But here in verse 7, is a statement that's been a bit troubling. I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. So the question comes, in what sense does God create evil? Isn't God good? If God is good, why did he make evil? Well, I believe there are several definitions or usages of the word evil. Quite frequently it is referring to morally evil, that which is contrary to righteousness and good, and to the moral uh, character of God. But there is also another usage of the term evil, and there are a number of Places, I'll just refer to one where uh, Israel, remember he's, he's the God of Israel. Do you remember when he was before Pharaoh in Egypt? He was now an old man and he told Pharaoh that few and evil have been the days of my life. Evil? Well, No, he wasn't an evil man. Israel was not evil. Well, why did he say few and evil? Well, his usage of that word evil there referred to misfortune, 
disappointment, sorrows, and a difficult path or way. It means misfortune or that which is not good and well. And if you note here, he says, I make peace and create evil. Peace being the opposite of this usage of the word evil here. Peace means well-being and tranquility. Evil, as used here, is the opposite of that. Difficulties, misfortune. And it is true that God allows those things to come into our lives. Even orchestrate circumstances. For example, his punishment of Israel and taking them into captivity for 70 years. That could have been called evil. It was not, it was not good, not pleasant. And even in that, of course, in that punishment, God was merciful to them. And I believe that's the sense here when he says, I make peace and create evil. It's not that he forces any creature or being to act contrary to his will. For example, the devil who resisted God, raised himself up against God, he had the power to do that. But God cast him out of heaven because of that transgression. So going on, he says, Woe unto him that striveth with his maker, verse 9. Let the potsherd strive with the potsherds of the earth. Shall the clay say to him that fashioneth it, What makest thou, or thy work? He hath no hands. Woe unto him that saith unto his father, What begettest thou? Or to the woman, What hast thou brought forth? Now, what I take from this about not speaking against uh, the maker or the potsherd striving with the one who made the clay or questioning, Woe unto him that saith unto his father, What begettest thou? It seems here he's talking about Maybe their difficulties or misfortunes or the evil that they had, had uh, suffered. And he's, he's challenging them not to blame their father or their mother and say that they have nothing to do with this. That's what I take from this sense here, that... It's not just a matter of uh, fate, as some would say, and even the, uh, some would teach the doctrine that God is determined from eternity past who's going to be righteous and who's going to be wicked, and that's all outside of our power. Well, that doesn't, doesn't flow with this verse, even though they'll actually use these terms. Well, if you say that that's not how, that's not God, well, maybe you're replying against God then. Well, my question is, 
In verse 10, Why is it woe to those that question, What begettest thou? We should think seriously that God will require of each of us to give an account for our soul. And we can't blame uh, our parents, our father or mother, and say, well, I, so I'm the son of, you know, I'm their son, and, and uh, my fate is just determined because of where I came from. No. God is calling each of us individually to serve him. Verse 11, Thus saith the Lord, the Holy One of Israel and his Maker, Ask me of things to come concerning my sons, and concerning the work of my hands command ye me. The first part there, Ask me of things to come concerning my sons. It's almost in a... uh, He's implying that he knows. He knows what is to come. If we were to ask him, he could tell us because he knows it. And concerning the work of my hands, command ye me. I'm not exactly sure what he means by that phrase. I would consider that um, in Psalm 2, When referring to Christ, he says, uh, Ask of me, and I will give thee the heathen for thine inheritance. If we think about what that's saying, it's like God wants the heathen to be converted. He wants them to be saved. And if we pray and appeal to God, he will enable his servant to do his will, to accomplish his will. And where he says here, concerning the work of my hands, command ye me, is he perhaps referring to simply praying and appealing that what God has commanded and ordained, he would so fulfill? Because we make appeals to God, we don't give him orders. I don't think this verse is saying that we are, uh, we are now going to tell God what to do other than what he has already commanded. I have made the earth and created man upon it. It is repeated throughout the scriptures that God made the earth And where he adds here, and created man upon it, it gives us meaning and purpose in life. God made the earth and he made it to be inhabited. He created us as part of this, of mankind. He created us upon the earth for a reason. And we should therefore endeavor to our fullest extent to bring him praise and glory and honor for that purpose for which he placed us here. Let's move on to the next uh, statement there that I put down, number four. Thou art a God that hidest thyself. Verse 15. 
Verily thou art a God that hidest thyself, O God of Israel, the Savior. Now it seems to contrast what he says a bit later then in verse uh, 19. He says, I have not spoken in secret in a dark place of the earth. So in verse 19, if he didn't speak in secret, why does it say then in verse 15 that thou art a God that hidest thyself? Well, I take from that, he is expressing another reality of God's character in that there are many things that God does not uh, openly declare himself in a... And so those who want to ignore him or not recognize him will claim that, well, where, where is your evidence of God? Now it is also true that even the heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament showeth his handiwork and he refers to that in this chapter about talking about uh, you know, creating the heavens. All their hosts have I commanded, verse 12. All of that declares the glory of God and yet... He is not a visible God. He is an invisible God. And His glory is hidden. Thou art a God that hidest thyself. So there is a sense in which God is hiding. And it's not that He can't be found. Verse 19, he goes on to say, I said not unto the seed of Jacob, Seek ye me in vain. He didn't command them to seek him, only to have them frustrated and not able to find him. He commanded them to seek him, even though he's somewhat hidden, but they are to seek him because he can be found. He can be found. Hallelujah. He can be found today, just as surely as Israel could find him back in that day. Then in uh, verse 17, he says, Israel shall be saved in the Lord with an everlasting salvation ye shall not be ashamed nor confounded world without end. World without end is referring to that which disappears into the future, the vanishing point and whatever lies beyond. That's kind of the sense of that term, a world without end. You can't even see you know, beyond the vanishing point. And is a, just a way to refer to eternity. And I just was so uh, blessed with these uh, thoughts and this statement here in this verse because think of how they would have looked at it in their day 
A statement like this is a promise of the future that is into eternity. And we can receive hope and comfort from those same promises. We're not looking just at the things that are made, but also at the things that are not made. The things that we see are temporal. The things that are not seen are eternal. And we direct our lives accordingly because... We don't see the end. There is a salvation, an everlasting salvation. Ye shall not be ashamed nor confounded world without end. Israel, that still exists to this day, is not yet experiencing the fullness of this promise. So he's very clearly speaking about a, a, a promise that endures into eternity. Verse 18, For thus saith the Lord that created the heavens, God himself that formed the earth and made it, he hath established it, he created it not in vain, he formed it to be inhabited, I am the Lord and there is none else. He's the only God who made these things. He made them with purpose, not in vain. He created man upon it for a reason. Then in verse 19, I have not spoken in secret in dark places of the earth. I said not unto the seed of Jacob, Seek ye me in vain. I, the Lord, speak righteousness. I declare things that are right. I declare things that are right. Oh, how we need that in this day. But it is a dependable characteristic of God that he tells us the truth. You know, if we were to compare that with what we see today... I didn't mention much about it, in, but in verse 2, he says, I will go before thee and make the crooked places straight. Well, there is a whole lot of things that are crooked in our day, and we often even use the term, or sometimes reference made to things that are crooked, such as crooked politicians, a crooked business deal. Uh, or even we shorten it up as a crook, or the crooks, plural. Those who do things that are not in order, they're, they're not straight. A business deal that was twisted, it wasn't what you expected. A politician that, or, or a judge, a, a crooked judge, what, what does a crooked judge do? He rules in ways that, that are not right because of whatever, something persuaded him to do it contrary to what is right and good, generally for his own purposes or, or maybe some bribe or something. Politician should be ruling for the general benefit of the population and not for their own enrichment or their own agendas or whatever. So we are very familiar with what is crooked. And 
Paul even referred to this as a crooked and perverse generation. And here's the good news is that someday Christ will come and all things that are crooked will be made straight. And so when the Lord speaks here in verse 19, I the Lord speak righteousness, I declare things that are right. The news sources that we have have to be weighed carefully and often judged. Even with a bit of skepticism. Recently heard someone say that, you know, the problem with the news, if you don't read the news or, or follow it at all, you're uninformed. But if you do read the news, then you're misinformed. It's a dilemma. Well, hopefully at least some of it is correct information, but you get the point. It has to be weighed. There's so much that is crooked today. But someday, it will all be made straight. John the Baptist preached that when they asked him who he was. Are you that prophet? Are you Elias? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the paths for the Lord. Amen. Well, let's go on. Talks in verse 20 about them praying unto a God that cannot save. Did you know that by far the greatest percentage of the population on this globe are praying to a God or gods that cannot save. Buddha will not save. Allah will not save. The Hindus with their million gods, varying names and sorts, those gods will not save. There is only one God that will save. And so he makes that statement, verse 21, Tell ye and bring them near, yea, let them take counsel together. Who hath declared this from ancient time? Who hath told it from that time? Have not I the Lord? And there is no God else beside me, a just God and a Savior. There is none beside me. There is no name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved except the name of the Lord Jesus. There is no God else beside me, a just God and a Savior, Jehovah God. And he says there in verse 22, Look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is none else. That clearly tells us that it is God's will for all to be saved. And that salvation comes only through this God and his Son whom he has sent, which is the Lord Jesus. And while that wasn't perfectly clear in the Old Testament, it is very clear in the New Testament. Christ 
was the express image of the Father. and He came in the flesh to save mankind. So when he says, look unto me and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth, it was abundantly clear to them in that day that there is no salvation outside of this God. And, secondly, when he says all the ends of the earth, it's an expression that means its entirety, everything, all mankind is appealed to here to look unto him to be saved. Well, let's go on here. I have sworn by myself, the word is gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return, that unto me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear. That one is quite familiar to us because it's repeated several times in the New Testament. And the context of those New Testament statements and quoting from this generally has to do with our accountability as an individual before God. Because all of us will be or will come before the judgment seat of Christ as he has sworn that every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess. That is the absolute statement. Now let's go to the book of Revelation in chapter 5 and verse 13. says, and every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, heard I saying, blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. Now when he says every creature he is referring to every created soul, certainly. I wonder sometimes if it's perhaps even beyond just the souls of men. That includes all of the living creatures, which you know from the scripture that God can make them talk too. So it would not be a problem for every living creature whether it's more than just mankind, but it certainly includes all of mankind, every knee shall bow. In the earth, under the earth, in the sea, all that's in them, blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. It seems to me that will be the culmination of everything that God has intended for this earth. If you will, the, the uh, 
crescendo of everything that God has been doing in the last 6,000 years. He has sent a Savior into the world and he intends that that Savior would rule over the entire earth. And it's hinted at here that they may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord and there is none else. God is looking for that day when he will be known throughout the entire earth as the king, as the God of Israel, as the one and only Savior, the one to whom every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. That is what God is working toward. And that day will come. That is the good news. Surely shall one say, In the Lord have I righteousness and strength. Even to him shall men come, and all that are incensed against him shall be ashamed. In the Lord shall all the seed of Israel be justified and shall glory. <clears throat> and what glory that will be. In the following chapter, verse 46, he begins with the statement that Bel boweth down, Nebo stoopeth. Have you ever wondered what, who is Bel? Well, Bel was the god of the Babylonians. Their chief deity was called Bel. And Isaiah here is prophesying clearly that even their chief deity, the one whom they worshipped, is going to bow and acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. Nebo was the name for another god. He also will stoop and bow. And that same is true for every other god that is named under the whole heaven other than the true God, all of them and the devils that are behind them will bow. They will acknowledge that Jehovah God is God alone and that there is no God or Savior beside him. Amen and amen. That is the good news for today. May the Lord bless you with that.